Merlin Sheldrake's vibrantly poetical book, Entangled Life, is providing store of great wonders beneath the earth today. But this is some older ecology, third episode of the John Muir Challenge. This is an unforgettable story about a dog called Stickeen. Muir is in uh, southeastern Alaska in the summer of 1880 with a companion, the Reverend Young. And the Reverend Young has a strange dog, which to Muir at first doesn't look promising. But his master assured me that he would be no trouble at all, that he was a perfect wonder of a dog, could endure cold and hunger like a bear, swim like a seal, and was wondrous wise and cunning, etc., making out a list of virtues to show he might be the most interesting member of the party. Nobody could hope to unravel the lines of his ancestry. In all the wonderfully mixed and varied dog tribe, I never saw any creature very much like him, though in some of his sly, soft, gliding motions and gestures he brought the fox to mind. He was short-legged and bunch-bodied, and his hair, though smooth, was long and silky and slightly waved, so that when the wind was at his back it ruffled, making him look shaggy. At first sight, his only noticeable feature was his fine tail, which was about as airy and shady as a squirrel's, and was carried curling forward almost to his nose. On closer inspection, you might notice his thin, sensitive ears and sharp eyes with cunning tan spots above them. Mr. Young told me that when the little fellow was a pup about the size of a wood rat, he was presented to his wife by an Irish prospector at Seatka, and that, on his arrival at Fort Rangel, he was adopted with enthusiasm by the Stickeen Indians as a sort of new good luck totem, was named Stickeen for the tribe, and became a universal favourite, petted, protected and admired wherever he went, and regarded as a mysterious fountain of wisdom. On our trip, he soon proved himself a queer character, odd, concealed, independent, keeping invincibly quiet and doing many little puzzling things that piqued my curiosity. As we sailed week after week through the long, intricate channels and inlets among the innumerable islands and mountains of the coast, he spent most of the dull days in sluggish ease, motionless and apparently as unobserving as if in deep sleep. But I discovered that somehow he always knew what was going on. When the Indians were about to shoot at ducks or seals, or when anything along the shore was exciting our attention, he would rest his chin on the edge of the canoe and calmly look out like a dreamy-eyed tourist. And when he heard us talking about making a landing, he immediately roused himself to see what sort of a place we were coming to and made ready to jump overboard and swim ashore as soon as the canoe neared the bench. Beach, I think that is. Then, with a vigorous shake to get rid of the brine in his hair, he ran into the woods to hunt small game. But though always the first out of the canoe, he was always the last to get into it. When we were ready to start, he could never be found and refused to come to our call. We soon found out, however, that though we could not see him at such times, he saw us, and from the cover of the briars and the huckleberry bushes and the fringe of the woods, was watching the canoe with wary eye. For, as soon as we were fairly off, he came trotting down the beach, plunged into the surf and swam after us, knowing well that we would cease rowing and take him in. Though capable of great idleness, he never failed to be ready for all sorts of adventures and excursions. One pitch-dark rainy night, we landed about ten o'clock at the mouth of a salmon stream when the water was phosphorescent. The salmon were running and the myriad fins of the onrushing multitude were churning all the stream into a silvery glow, wonderfully beautiful and impressive in the ebon darkness. To get a good view of the show, I set out with one of the Indians and sailed up through the midst of it, 
onto the foot of a rapid about half a mile from camp, where the swift current dashing over rocks made the luminous glow most glorious. Happening to look back down the stream while the Indian was catching a few of the struggling fish, I saw a long spreading fan of light like the tail of a comet, which we thought must be made by some big strange animal that was pursuing us. On it came with its magnificent train until we imagined we could see the monster's head and eyes, but it was only Stickeen who, finding I had left the camp, came swimming after me to see what was up. When we camped early, the best hunter of the crew usually went to the woods for a deer and Stickeen was sure to be at his heels, provided I had not gone out. For, strange to say, though I never carried a gun, he always followed me, forsaking the hunter and even his master to share my wanderings. The days that were too stormy for sailing I spent in the woods or on the adjacent mountains, wherever my studies called me, and Stickeen always insisted on going with me. However wild the weather, gliding like a fox through dripping huckleberry bushes and thorny tangles of panax and rubus, scarce stirring their rain-laden leaves, wading and wallowing through snow, swimming icy streams, skipping over logs and rocks, and the crevasses of glaciers with the patience and endurance of a determined mountaineer, never tiring or getting discouraged. Once he followed me over a glacier, the surface of which was so crusty and rough that it cut his feet until every step was marked with blood, but he trotted on with Indian fortitude until I noticed his red track and taking pity on him made him a set of moccasins out of a handkerchief. Yet none of us was able to make out what Stickeen was really good for. He seemed to meet danger and hardships without anything like reason, insisted on having his own way, never obeyed an order and the hunter could never set him on anything or make him fetch the birds he shot. His equanimity was so steady it seemed due to want of feeling. Ordinary storms were pleasures to him, and as for mere rain, he flourished in it like a vegetable. No matter what advances you might make, scarce a glance or a tail wag would you get for your pains. But, though he was apparently as cold as a glacier, and about as impervious to fun, I tried hard to make his acquaintance, guessing there must be something worthwhile hidden beneath so much courage, endurance and love of wild weathery adventure. Muir now plans uh, an expedition and ends up taking Stickeen with him uh, against his judgment. Mr. Young and the Indian were asleep, and so I hoped was Stickeen, but I had not gone half a dozen rods before he left his bed in the tent and came boring through the blast after me. That a man should welcome storms for their exhilarating music and motion and go forth to see God making landscapes is reasonable enough. But what fascination could there be in such tremendous weather for a dog? Surely nothing akin to human enthusiasm for scenery or geology. Anyhow, on he came, breakfastless, through the choking blast. I stopped and did my best to turn him back. Now don't, I said, shouting to make myself heard in the storm. Don't, Stikeen. What has got into your queer noddle now? You must be daft. This wild day has nothing for you. There's no game abroad, nothing but weather. Go back to camp and keep warm. Get a good breakfast with your master and be sensible for once. I can't carry you all day or feed you and this storm will kill you. But nature, it seems, was at the bottom of the affair and she gains her ends with dogs as well as with men, making us do as she likes, shoving and pulling us along her ways, however rough, all but killing us at times and getting her lessons driven hard home. 
After I had stopped again and again, shouting good warning advice, I saw that he was not to be shaken off. As well might the earth try to shake off the moon. The pitiful wanderer just stood there in the wind, drenched and blinking, saying doggedly, Where thou goest, I will go. So at last I told him to come on if he must, and gave him a piece of the bread I had in my pocket. Then we struggled on together, and thus began the most memorable of all my wild days. If you've read me, you'll know that is quite a statement. The level flood, driving hard in our faces, thrashed and washed us wildly until we got into the shelter of a grove on the east side of the glacier near the front, where we stopped a while for breath and to listen and look out. The exploration of the glacier was my main object, but the wind was too high to allow excursions over its open surface, where one might be dangerously shoved while balancing for a jump on the brink of a crevasse. In the meantime, the storm was a fine study. There, the end of the glacier, descending an abrupt swell of resisting rock about 500 feet high, leans forward and falls in ice cascades. And as the storm came down the glacier from the north, Stikine and I were beneath the main current of the blast, while favourably located to see and hear it. What a psalm the storm was singing, and how fresh the smell of the washed earth and leaves, and how sweet the still, small voices of the storm. Detached wafts and swirls were coming through the woods with music, from the leaves and branches and furrowed bowls, and even from the splintered rocks and ice crags overhead, many of the tones soft and low and flute-like, as if each leaf and tree, crag and spire, were a tuned reed. A broad torrent draining the side of the glacier, now swollen by scores of new streams from the mountains, was rolling boulders along its rocky channel, with thudding, bumping, muffled sounds rushing toward the bay with tremendous energy, as if in haste to get out of the mountains, the winters above and beneath calling to each other and all to the ocean, their home. Looking southward from our shelter, we had this great torrent and the forested mountain wall above it on our left, the spiry ice crags on our right and smooth grey gloom ahead. I tried to draw the marvellous scene in my notebook, but the rain blurred the page in spite of all my pains to shelter it, and the sketch was almost worthless. About three miles from the front of the glacier, I climbed to the surface of it by means of axe steps made easy for sticking. As far as the eye could reach, the level or nearly level glacier stretched away indefinitely beneath the grey sky, a seemingly boundless prairie of ice. The rain continued and grew colder, which I did not mind, but a dim snowy look in the drooping clouds made me hesitate about venturing far from land. No trace of the west shore was visible, and in case the clouds would settle and give snow, or the wind again become violent, I feared getting caught in a tangle of crevasses. Snow crystals, the flowers of the mountain clouds, are frail, beautiful things, but terrible, when flying on storm winds in darkening, benumbing swarms, or welded together into glaciers full of deadly crevasses. At first we made rapid progress and the sky was not very threatening, while I took bearings occasionally with a pocket compass to enable me to find my way back more surely in case the storm should become blinding. But the structure lines of the glacier were my main guide. Toward the west side, we came to a closely crevassed section in which we had to make long, 
narrow tacks and doublings, tracing the edges of tremendous traverse and longitudinal crevasses, many of which were from 20 to 30 feet wide and perhaps a thousand feet deep, beautiful and awful. In working way through them, I was severely cautious, but sticking came on as unhesitating as the flying clouds. The widest crevasse that I could jump, he would leap without so much as halting to take a look at it. The weather was now making quick changes, scattering bits of dazzling brightness through the wintry gloom at rare intervals. When the sun broke forth wholly free, the glacier was seen from shore to shore with a bright array of encompassing mountains partly revealed, wearing the clouds as garments, while the prairie bloomed and sparkled with iris light from myriad washed crystals. Then, suddenly, all the glorious show would be darkened and blotted out. Stickeen seemed to care for none of these things, bright or dark, nor for the crevasses, wells, moulins, or swift flashing streams into which he might fall. The little adventurer was only about two years old, yet nothing seemed novel to him. Nothing daunted him. He showed neither caution nor curiosity, wonder nor fear, but bravely trotted on as if glaciers were playgrounds. His stout, muffled body seemed all one skipping muscle and it was truly wonderful to see how swiftly and to all appearance heedlessly he flashed across nerve-trying chasms six or eight feet wide. His courage was so unwavering that it seemed to be due to dullness of perception, as if he were only blindly bold, and I kept warning him to be careful, for we had been close companions on so many wilderness trips that I had formed the habit of talking to him as if he were a boy and understood every word. The walking was easy along the margin of the forest, which, of course, like that on the other side, had been invaded and crushed by the swollen, overflowing glacier. In an hour or so, after passing a massive headland, we came suddenly on a branch of the glacier which, in the form of a magnificent ice cascade two miles wide, was pouring over the rim of the main basin in a westerly direction, its surface broken into wave-shaped blades and shattered blocks suggesting the wildest updashing, heaving, plunging motion of a great river cataract. Tracing it down three or four miles, I found that it discharged into a lake, filling it with icebergs. Well, they go through a network of crevasses and the snow is now flying thick and fast. Being Muir, of course, he keeps on and sticking keeps on with him but pleasantly they come to what even for Muir is a hell of a challenge where as we'll see uh, they have to keep going forward because they simply cannot go back beginning not immediately above the sunken end of the bridge but a little to one side I cut a deep hollow on the brink for my knees to rest in then, leaning over with my short-handled axe, I cut a step 16 or 18 inches below, which, on account of the sheerness of the wall, was necessarily shallow. That step, however, was well made. Its floor sloped slightly inward and formed a good hold for my heels. Then, slipping cautiously upon it and crouching as low as possible, with my left side toward the wall, I steadied myself against the wind with my left hand in a slight notch, while with the right I cut other similar steps and notches in succession, guarding against losing balance by glinting of the axe or by wind gusts, for life and death were in every stroke and in the niceness and finish of every foothold. 
After the end of the bridge was reached, I chipped it down until I made a level platform six or eight inches wide. And it was a trying thing to poise on this little slippery platform while bending over to get safely astride of the sliver. Crossing was then comparatively easy by chipping off the sharp edge with short, careful strokes and hitching forward an inch or two at a time, keeping my balance with my knees pressed against the sides. The tremendous abyss on either hand I studiously ignored. To me, the edge of that blue sliver was then all the world. But the most trying part of the adventure, after working my way across the across inch by inch and chipping another small platform was to rise from a safe position astride and to cut a step ladder in the nearly vertical face of the wall, chipping, climbing, holding on with feet and fingers in mere notches. At such times, one's whole body is I, and common skill and fortitude are replaced by power beyond our call or knowledge. Never before had I been so long under deadly strain. How I got up that cliff, I never could tell. The thing seemed to have been done by somebody else. I never have held death in contempt, though in the course of my explorations, I have oftentimes felt that to meet one's fate on a noble mountain or in the heart of a glacier would be blessed as compared with death from disease or from some shabby lowland accident. But the best death, quick and crystal pure, set so glaringly open before us, is hard enough to face, even though we feel gratefully sure that we have already had happiness enough for a dozen lives. But poor Stikine, the wee, hairy, sleek it beastie, think of him. When I had decided to dare the bridge, and while I was on my knees chipping a hollow on the rounded brow above it, he came behind me, pushed his head past my shoulder, looked down and across, scanned the sliver, and its approaches with his, with his mysterious eyes, then looked me in the face with a startled air of surprise and concern, and began to mutter and whine, saying as plainly as if speaking with words, surely you are not going into that awful place. This was the first time I had seen him gaze deliberately into a crevasse, or into my face with an eager, speaking, troubled look that he should have recognized and appreciated the danger at the first glance showed wonderful sagacity never before had the daring midget seemed to know that ice was slippery or that there was any such thing as danger anywhere his looks and tones of voice when he began to complain and speak his fears were so human that i unconsciously talked to him in sympathy as i would to a frightened boy and in trying to calm his fears, perhaps in some measure moderated my own. Hush your fears, my boy, I said. We will get across safe, though it is not going to be easy. No right way is easy in this rough world. We must risk our lives to save them. At the worst, we can only slip, and then how grand a grave we will have. And by and by, our nice bones will do good in the terminal moraine. But my sermon was far from reassuring him. He began to cry, and after taking another piercing look at the tremendous gulf, ran away in desperate excitement, seeking some other crossing. By the time he got back, baffled of course, I had made a step or two. I dared not look back, but he made himself heard. When he saw that I was certainly bent on crossing, he cried aloud in despair. 
The danger was enough to haunt anybody, but it seems wonderful that he should have been able to weigh, weigh and appreciate it so justly. No mountaineer could have seen it more quickly or judged it more wisely, discriminating between real and apparent peril. When I gained the other side, he screamed louder than ever, and after running back and forth in vain, in vain search for a way of escape, he would return to the brink of the crevasse above the bridge, moaning and wailing as if in the bitterness of death. Could this be the silent, philosophic Stikine? I shouted encouragement, telling him the bridge was not so bad as it looked, that I had left it flat and safe for his feet, and he could walk it easily. But he was afraid to try. Strange, so small an animal should be capable of such big, wise fears. I called again and again in a reassuring tone to come on and fear nothing, that he could come if he would only try. He would hush for a moment, look down again at the bridge, and shout his unshakable conviction that he could never, never come that way, then lie back in despair as if howling, what a place, no, I can never go down there. His natural composure and courage had vanished utterly in a tumultuous storm of fear. Had the danger been less, his distress would have seemed ridiculous. But in this dismal, merciless abyss lay the shadow of death, and his heart-rending cries might well have called heaven to his help. Perhaps they did. So hidden before, he was now transparent, and one could see the workings of his heart and mind like the movements of a clock out of its case. His voice and gestures, hopes and fears, were so perfectly human that none could mistake them, while he seemed to understand every word of mine. I was troubled at the thought of having to leave him out all night and of the danger of not finding him in the morning. It seemed impossible to get him to venture. To compel him to try through fear of being abandoned, I started off as if leaving him to his fate and disappeared back of a hummock. But this did no good. He only lay down and moaned in utter hopeless misery. <coughs> so after hiding a few minutes, I went back to the brink of the crevasse and in a severe tone of voice shouted across to him that now I must certainly leave him. I could wait no longer and that if he would not come, all I could promise was that I would return to seek him next day. I warned him that if he went back to the woods, the wolves would kill him and finished by urging him once more by words and gestures to come on, come on. He knew very well what I meant. And at last, with the courage of despair, hushed and breathless, he crouched down on the brink in the hollow I had made for my knees, pressed his body against the ice as if trying to get the advantage of the friction of every hair, gazed into the first step, put his little feet together and slid them slowly, slowly over the edge and down into it, bunching all four in it and almost standing on his head. Then, without lifting his feet, as well as I could see through the snow, he slowly worked them over the edge of the step and down into the next and the next, in succession in the same way, and gained the end of the bridge. Then, lifting his feet with the regularity and slowness of the vibrations of a second's pendulum, as if counting and measuring one, two, three, Holding himself steady against the gusty wind and giving separate attention to each little step, he gained the foot of the cliff while I was on my knees, leaning over to give him a lift, should he succeed in getting within reach of my arm. Here he halted in dead silence, and it was here I feared he might fail, for dogs are poor climbers. I had no cord. If I had had one, I would have dropped a noose over his head and hauled him up. But while I was thinking whether an available cord might be made out of clothing, he was looking keenly into the series of notch steps and finger holes I had made, as if counting them, 
and fixing the position of each one of them in his mind. Then suddenly up he came in a springy rush, hooking his paws into the steps and notches so quickly that I could not see how it was done and whizzed past my head, safe at last. And now came a scene. Well done, well done, little boy, brave boy, I cried, trying to catch and caress him, but he would not be caught. Never before or since have I seen anything like so passionate a revulsion from the depths of despair to exultant, triumphant, uncontrollable joy. He flashed and darted hither and thither as if fairly demented, screaming and shouting, swirling round and round in giddy loops and circles like a leaf in a whirlwind, lying down and rolling over and over, sidewise and heels overhead, and pouring forth a tumultuous flood of hysterical cries and sobs and gasping mutterings. When I ran up to him to shake him, fearing he might die of joy, he flashed off two or three hundred yards, his feet in a mist of motion, then, turning suddenly, came back in a wild rush and launched himself at my face, almost knocking me down, all the while screeching and screaming and shouting as if saying, saved, saved, saved. Then away again, dropping suddenly at times with his feet in the air, trembling and fairly sobbing. Such passionate emotion was enough to kill him. Who could have guessed the capacity of the dull, enduring little fellow for all that most stores, stirs this mortal frame? Nobody could have helped crying with him. But there is nothing like work for toning down excessive fear or joy. So I ran ahead, calling him in as gruff a voice as I could to come on and stop his nonsense. We had far to go and it would soon be dark. Neither has feared another trial like this. Heaven would surely count one enough for a lifetime. The ice ahead was gashed by thousands of crevasses, but they were common ones. The joy of deliverance burned in us like fire, and we ran without fatigue, every muscle with immense rebound, glorying in his strength. Sticking flew across everything in his way, and not until dark did he settle into his normal fox-like trot. At last, the cloudy mountains came in sight, and we soon felt the solid rock beneath our feet and were safe. Then came weakness. Danger had vanished and so had our strength. We tottered down the lateral moraine in the dark, over boulders and tree trunks, through the bushes and devil club thickets of the grove where we had sheltered ourselves in the morning and across the level mud slope of the terminal moraine. We reached, we reached camp about 10 o'clock and found a big fire and a big supper. A party of Hoona Indians had visited Mr Young, bringing a gift of porpoise meat and wild strawberries, and Hunter Joe had brought in a wild goat. But we lay down, too tired to eat much, and soon fell into a troubled sleep. Stikine kept springing up and muttering in his sleep, no doubt dreaming that he was still on the brink of the crevasse, and so did I, that night and many others long afterwards, when I was overtired. Thereafter, Stikine was a changed dog. During the rest of the trip, instead of holding aloof, he always lay by my side, tried to keep me constantly in sight and would hardly accept a morsel of food, however tempting from any hand but mine. At night, when all was quiet about the campfire, he would come to me and rest his head on my knee with a look of devotion, as if I were his god. And often as he caught my eye, he seemed to be trying to say, wasn't that an awful time we had together on the glacier?
Nothing in after years has dimmed that Alaska storm day. As I write, it all comes rushing and roaring to mind as if I were again in the heart of it. Again, I see the grey flying clouds with their rain floods and snow, the ice cliffs towering above the shrieking forest, the majestic ice cascade, the vast glacier outspread before its white mountain fountains. And in the heart of it, tremendous crevasse, emblem of the valley of the shadow of death, low clouds trailing over it, the snow falling into it, and on its brink I still see little Stikeen, and I hear his cries for help and his shouts of joy. I've known many dogs and many a story I could tell of their wisdom and devotion, but to none do I owe so much as to Stikeen. At first the least promising and least known of my dog friends, he suddenly became the best known of them all. Our storm battle for life brought him to light, and through him, as through a window, I have ever since been looking with deeper sympathy into all my fellow mortals. None of Stickeen's friends knows what finally became of him. After my work for the season was done, I departed for California, and I never saw the dear little fellow again. In reply to anxious inquiries, his master wrote me that in the summer of 1883, he was stolen by a tourist at Fort Wrangell and taken away on a steamer. His fate is wrapped in mystery. Doubtless he has left this world, crossed the last crevasse, and gone to another, but he will not be forgotten. To me, Stikine is immortal. This has been Dark Histories from the Secret University. I hope you enjoyed meeting Stikine, and I hope he's made some interesting reincarnations since then. Goodbye for now.